Well, welcome to uh, the book of Galatians. Galatians, and uh, tonight will be an introduction to the book. This is not an introduction, three points with a conclusion type sermon. Um, I don't think we'll remember everything said tonight, but I do think it's necessary to at least set before you uh, some key things in this book as far as introduction. After this point, uh, next Sunday night, we'll begin preaching the text uh, at verse 1 and, and preach verse by verse through the book. And so um, I encourage you to read the book and think through it, but uh, it is clearly a Pauline letter. Uh, I know that there are a lot of discussions about authorship, and I'm not going to bore you with those details about authorship, uh, but this one here is one of those that it's like across the board accepted that the Apostle Paul is the author. And so not a lot of debate over that issue. Um, all right, um, I do want to give uh, credit where credit is due. And so this is not a sermon like I made up the sermon myself and created all these points. So I gleaned from commentaries, getting background material. And so a lot of this is not original to me. And so I'm not taking credit for it. A lot of it comes from F.F. F. Bruce and a critical commentary that I have. Uh, so just being fair there, I didn't invent all of this stuff because the historical information, I don't have that in my head or don't even know how to get it sometimes. So just letting you know that a lot of this is formulated from reading other people's writings rather than it being a, a sermon of mine. All right, uh, let's get started with this introduction. Let me at least read verses 1 through 5 where we can at least have the introductory text but these other things, if you have a pen, if you have interest, um, I would encourage you to at least write down the references tonight. I, I will call them out for your advantage. If you don't write them down, uh, you will forget them. But let's read uh, to start. Paul, an apostle, not from men. You see, every one of these phrases is going to mean something, but not from men, nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So I pause there for just one moment, but Paul's authority and validity are being attacked by the troublemakers of Galatia. That's why he writes this way. Look, my authority didn't come from man, not the Jerusalem council, not the Jerusalem church. And look, that's not where it came from. So he's having to defend himself because he's being attacked so vehemently by false teachers. Verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. You can look in your Bible map in the back. Galatia is a big area. There's more than one church there. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so as we look in this introduction, we're going to look at what spawned the writing of this letter. That's one. I think it's about seven of these. But what spawned? Why did he write the letter? What is the main thing going on in the book? And uh, delightfully, we'll find from the very earliest writings of Marcion all the way up to our day, a consistent idea of what the main theme is. It's not a bunch of variety of options. There's a clear main theme to this letter. Against whom is Paul defending himself? Because he is defending himself at several points in this book. Um, 
The issue of circumcision is a big issue throughout this book. Circumcision is going to come up, those of the circumcision, those not of the circumcision. So we need to know something about that. Then there's this phrase, um, it's uh, stoicheia, I think, I have to look at it, but uh, it's the elements of the world. What What are these elements that we're dealing with? What do they mean and what's going on with elements of this world? And then a central theme of the gospel um, this is interesting. A central theme of the gospel that Paul preaches is the same as the central theme that Christ preached, and we'll see it in the parables. I'll show you a couple parables that, where you see what Christ did with the gospel and how Paul's gospel agrees with Christ's gospel in the parables. I think it's a, I'd never seen that before. I think it's a kind of a cool deal. And then um, lastly, I want to say at least one word because there's all this talk about the law and we're not under law, we're not under law, we're not under law. Just make sure you fulfill the law of Christ. So we need to say something about the law of Christ. So we're not under the law, but make sure you keep the law of Christ. And so we ought to say at least a word about that in the introduction. All right, so first, number one, why did Paul write this letter? That's the first question. Well, Paul has undoubtedly in this book received news that the Gentile Christians of Galatia are being pressured to reject what he has clearly taught them. Paul preached, they received, and now they're being pressured to throw that out for something else, something contrary to what Paul preached. Now, Paul calls these people, Galatians 1.7, Galatians 5.10, he calls them troublemakers, troublemakers, or unsettlers, or agitators. That's what he calls them. And I don't want to run too far afield with this, but I know that in our day, they say you can't say something negative or call somebody by name. You call out a ministry and say they're a bunch of heretics. They say you can't call or use names or say that. Well, I understand maybe why some people say that, but the Bible does do this. These people are troublemakers. They're causing trouble in the church, and I'm calling them, calling them out. And, and there are other places where Paul, Paul calls people by name, such as Demas or somebody like this or Alexander the coppersmith who did him great harm. It's not that that should be the, the hallmark of your ministry, but sometimes people need to be called out when they're causing a problem to the church. So whoever these people are, they are doing at least two things. They are trying to impose some form of Jewish law upon these people in Galatia. Preeminently, circumcision. That's one aspect of the law, but they are definitely pushing that. You must be circumcised to be Christian. You're not circumcised, you're not a part of the family of God, you're not in the covenant. And they are trying to push them into mandatory observance of certain days, seasons, months, and years. You've got to keep the calendar just like we do or you're not Christian. And so it's obligatory in order for you to truly be saved. Okay, That's what they're pressing upon them. And so throughout this book, Paul denounces what they're trying to do very clearly. So, so knowing what they're doing, now hear these texts. You can just write down the references. I just give little bullet statements. But Galatians 1.7, they are distorting the gospel. Galatians 5.4, submitting to them is equivalent 
to turning away from God. That's in chapter 1, verse 6. It's also in chapter 5, verse 4. If you, if you do this, if you submit to them, you're turning away from God. 5, 4 says you're being severed from Christ and you fall from grace. Now, you know that's a, that's a, a text people use all the time to say you can lose your salvation. That's not even what we're talking about here. Paul taught a gospel of grace. These other teachers are teaching a gospel of works. If you move over to what they're teaching, you're leaving grace. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. You're just buying into a false teaching that's going to lead you into an apostasy. All right, Galatians 1.8, these troublemakers will be cursed. The word does mean damned, cursed or damned, for substituting things in place of the true gospel. These guys that are causing a problem will be cursed by God. But Paul is very strong in his language in this book to these troublemakers. Galatians 5.10, these troublemakers are positioning themselves in the place to receive divine judgment. They continue this, you're going to have to deal with God. God's going to deal with them. Galatians 3.11, the substitution of anything, of anything, into the equation of justification by grace is contrary to the gospel. Salvation is all grace. You can't add anything to that or subtract from that. Galatians 5.8, here's a clear one. Their teaching is not from God. It's pretty clear. Galatians 1.6, again, the teaching that they received and the teaching of the troublemakers is incompatible that you can't harmonize them in any way. Galatians 4.16, these teachers attacked Paul's credentials, his credentials, his character, and his message, which provokes the question. What's the question? Have I then become your enemy because I've told you the truth? So that's why that question comes out in chapter 4, verse 16. They're attacking Paul. It's like, how did I become your enemy? I, I haven't changed my message from the first time you heard me preach. How did I become your enemy? So Paul finds it necessary to spend quite a bit of time in his letter on the divine authority of his gospel and on his commission to preach it. It appears that chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 10, verse 10, is autobiogra- autobiographical of sketch of his life from the first 14 to 17 years of his apostleship. You glance there at chapter 2, verse 1. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. So this autobiographical sketch he's giving them, chapter 111 through chapter 2 and verse 10, showing them who he is. Uh, his apostleship his, and his aim of establishing his independence. In particular, his independence from the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem council, I've been commissioned by God to preach this gospel. That's what Paul is telling them. Now, secondly, uh, the main thing going on in the book, and so I I will not uh, give all of these things to you, but I do want you to hear a consistent theme on this book. And so we start around 144, 144 A.D., and we'll work our way, it won't take but a moment, to work our way up. Uh, to the late 1800s and then into our day. Now, this is 
the main thing going on in the book. And I've tried to highlight it and make it clear because it seems pretty precise to me, but we need to know this to deal with this book rightly. So no scripture references here, just the main thing of the book. So you go all the way back to Marcion, 144. He says, the Galatians are Greeks. They at first received the word of truth from the apostle, but after his departure, they were tempted by false apostles to turn to the law and circumcision. The apostle calls them back to the true faith, writing to them from Ephesus. Then you move to the fourth century, a man by the name of Marius Victorinus. Marius Victorinus says the sum of this whole letter is this. The Galatians are going astray because they are adding Judaism to the gospel of faith in Christ. Observing in a material sense the Sabbath, circumcision, and other works which they received in accordance with the law. Disturbed by these tendencies, Paul writes this letter. Wishing to put them right, call them back from Judaism in order that they may preserve faith in Christ alone and receive from Christ the hope of salvation and of his promises because no one, no one is saved by works of the law. So in order to show what they are adding is wrong, he wishes to confirm the truth of his gospel. That's, this isn't, Paul, in a, in, a, in a real sense here, is using every ounce of energy he has to preserve a pure gospel. Then we move to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, um, 1400, 1483, 1546 are his years. Luther says in his introduction to his commentary, the Galatians had been brought by St. Paul to write Christian belief from the law to the gospel. But after his departure, there came false apostles who were disciples of the true apostles. Now, we learned something. There's true apostles. There's Peter, there's James, there's John, all these true apostles. Then there's the apostle Paul. And then there's this group that were affiliated with these apostles, but they broke off. And they have a different agenda. When you have a different agenda, you push that agenda And to validate your agenda, what do you do? Talk bad about the guy who preached first and discredit him. So Luther's letting us know these false teachers were close to the apostles, but there's been a schism. I want you to get that. This happens in our day as well. You get somebody to rebel. Let's just make up something. Somebody rebels against Jeff Noblet and splits off. What do you do? You preach what you want to preach, and you say, that Jeff Noblet, and you list out stuff. You try to discredit him where people believe you. That's what's going on in this book. Well, after his departure, there came these false apostles who were disciples of the true apostles, and they turned the Galatians back again to believe that they must attain blessedness through the work of the law, and that they were sinning if they did not hold to the works of the law, and they go back to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. And he's saying the Jerusalem Council really held this position, but once Paul moved away from the Jerusalem Council, he changed his message, and the Jerusalem Council wouldn't approve of what he's preaching now. That's what they would say, these false apostles or false teachers. Luther goes on, 
St. Paul goes about to establish the doctrine of faith, grace, forgiveness of sins, and Christian righteousness to the end that we may have a perfect knowledge and difference between Christian righteousness and all other kinds of righteousness. For if the article of justification be lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. Christ, says Paul, has mercifully called you in grace that you should be a freeman under Christ and not a bondman under Moses, whose disciples you are now become again by the means of your false apostles, who by the law of Moses called you not unto grace but unto wrath, to the hating of God, to sin and death. You see what Luther does? If you go back to the law of Moses, you hate God. That's strong language. Why would Luther be so strong to say, if you do that, you hate God? Because God provided Christ to set you free. If you go back, you're despising the Son of God. That's hatred. So Luther did a great job in bringing that out. One final thought by Luther here, and we'll progress on. But uh, Luther goes on in Galatians, and he says, Paul indeed hath be- These false teachers would say it this way. They would say, According to Luther, they would say, Paul indeed has begun well, but to have begun well is not enough, for there remains yet many higher matters, like as they say in the 15th chapter of Acts. It's not enough for you to believe in Christ, it's not enough for you to be baptized, but it behooveth also you must be circumcised. That's what these false teachers were saying. For except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is as much to say as that Christ is a good workman which hath indeed begun a building, but he hath not finished it. For this Moses must do. And so this is what these false teachers are doing. And Paul, in this book, so now when you read it, at least we know why he's saying what he's saying and why he's using the language he's using. Now, we could go on. Calvin says the same thing. E.C. Bauer says the same thing. Bishop Leisfoot says the same thing. But there's a consistent track record throughout church history that this is the main issue of the book. And so we need to know that as we work through it. Now, third, who are the enemies that he is defending himself against? Now, Paul is independent from the Jerusalem Council And he is in opposition to them in some regard, as argued by the Judaizers. I'm not convinced that Paul's in contradiction to the Jerusalem Council. Uh, In the end of my conclusion, I think he's in agreement with them. I think the false teachers are distorting the information. But they were in effect saying that the Jerusalem leaders are not only persons, that the Jerusalem Council is the only people who have the authority to confirm what is a true gospel and what is a false gospel. And they're saying that Paul left them, and after he got some distance away from them, uh, that he began to change that. When he went off to Syria and to Cilicia, he began to adapt the gospel to make it palatable to the Gentiles. They claim that the leaders of Jerusalem upheld circumcision and other long-held traditions. And so they're pitting the Jerusalem council against Paul in order to discredit him. Now, Paul's answer to these accusations, Paul does give an answer in this book. Galatians 1.12, <clears throat> here's Paul's answer. 
I did not receive it from any man. Let's just get that straight. Nor was I taught it. I received the gospel from the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. You say, man, I mean, how can he say that? He says it, he holds to it, he lives it. Christ made the gospel known. Paul states he has the same authority as Peter, Galatians 2, 7 through 8. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, now note, in parentheses, the text says, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to the uncircumcised. Whatever authority Peter has, I have the same authority, the same apostolic authority to do the preaching that I'm doing. Besides this, it appears that the Jerusalem leaders held to the same core principles when it came to the gospel. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, whether then it was I or they, Jerusalem Council, so we preach. We both preach the same thing and you believe. So Paul's saying that him and the Jerusalem Council are in agreement and the false apostles are saying they're in disagreement. For Paul, his concern is solely with the imposing of circumcision on Gentile Christians. Whether Jewish Christians continue to circumcise their children or not was probably a matter of small importance in his eyes. You circumcise your kids, that's up to you. I don't care. I mean, that's basically what Paul's saying. If you want to circumcise your kid on the eighth day, then circumcise your kid. But if you don't circumcise your kid, it's no skin off my back either way. But if you take and make that a prerequisite for being saved, now we're going to fight. This is how clear he was. Same thing with Sabbath days and regulations and days and seasons and all of that. If you want to observe this day or that day, if you want to hold to the dietary laws, that's on you. But if you impose that on people to make it a prerequisite for salvation, you've crossed the line. All right, number four, what is the issue with this circumcision? Well, for Paul, circumcision was not the central issue. He says this in two places. Galatians 5, 6. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It count for nothing. Also, Galatians 6, 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Here's what you've got to have. You've got to have a new creation. You've got to be created totally new. But circumcision is not the issue. What angered Paul was when people made circumcision obligatory for salvation. He was really mad when people taught that a man is not converted unless he's circumcised. Unless you do what we say, you're not saved. Paul is now mad. Galatians 5, 2 through 3. Paul says, quote, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is is of no advantage to you. That's strong language. When you got a people saying you got to do this to be saved, and Paul says, if you hold that position, you've got nothing with Christ. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, look, dude, you're going to have to keep everything in the whole law. If you're going to have to keep circumcision, you've got to get every jot and tittle perfect to get saved. Paul's very strong on this. You see that if they accept circumcision as necessary for salvation, 
They cannot stop there. They must keep the whole law. In regards to legal obligations, these false teachers are troublemakers. Paul says that, Galatians 6.13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. You've got to be circumcised like you keep every jot of the law. You don't. They don't keep it themselves. They desire to have you circumcised where they can boast in their own flesh. And they get happy because you do what they tell you. They give you a legal standard, jump through these hoops, check these boxes, and if we can make you do it, we'll pat ourselves on the back. Look, we got them all to do it. Sound like an old Southern Baptist church, doesn't it? I brought my Bible. I came to Sunday school. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. I'm a good Christian. No, unless you're saved by grace, you're not in Christian. You see, and so we take those legal standards and make people do all this stuff. If you wear your tie and you wear your suit and you come on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and on Wednesday night, and you do it exactly like we've always done it for 100 years, then you're a good Christian. You can do all of those things and go to hell. Now, I'm all for wearing a suit, dude. I always wear a suit. That doesn't make me righteous, and it don't grant me salvation. And for me to press that on you is legalism. Okay? I don't even have a text for that. You must wear a suit to church. I don't have a text. So make that a requirement is really off the charts. But that's what they're doing here with circumcision. Think through the situation like this. Paul told them that, this is Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law under curse. You think back through religious life, how many people live in some type of bitterness and, and it's kind of a, a cloud over them. And you, you try to keep all of the law. Ask Tony about it. Tony tried to keep the law half of his life, trying to do everything right in order to make everybody happy. It'd kill you. You just live under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in everything that is written in the law. And you're like, you keep finding, here, just read Pilgrim's Progress. You get there and there's this big mountain. It's about to fall on my head. I just want out of here. It'll kill you. You can't keep all of this stuff. If you do not keep the entire law, you're cursed. Then Paul tells them, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, one substituted and paid the curse for you. Don't go back and live under a curse. Christ set you free. Now, for those who believe this and have experienced the freedom that is in Christ, to go back is as unbelievable as a slave in 19th century America being set free and then returning to a cruel taskmaster and serving unto him. That would make no sense. That's why in Galatians 4, he's like, I'm perplexed. How could you go back? It doesn't make any sense. For these false teachers, law-keeping began with mandatory circumcision for salvation. And so Paul says this, Galatians 5, 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. These false teachers treated these Gentile converts who repented and believed in Christ by faith. They treated them as God-fearers who were still outside of Jewish fellowship. 
They're not to be admitted as proselytes and have membership within it because they haven't obeyed our rules. We must conclude by saying, quote, Circumcision, with many other features of the law of Israel, food restrictions, sacred seasons, and the like, had traditionally kept Jews and Gentiles apart. Such things had no place in the new creation. Paul said, Galatians 6.15, we already said it once, we'll say it again. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then in Galatians 3.28, we said this, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Look, you're one in Christ, apart from all of these obligations that somebody's trying to put on you. There's a word for all of us here tonight. Now, we don't push circumcision to be saved, and hopefully we don't push other requirements to be saved, but I grew up in all kinds of different contexts, and I remember clearly, especially in the charismatic circles, that you really wasn't saved fully unless you spoke in tongues. And they pressured me to speak in tongues, and because until I did that, I didn't really have all of the gospel, and I was inferior to these super apostles, if you will, because they spoke in tongues, and I didn't speak in tongues and so I'm a little bit on the outside because I didn't do what they did I'm like wait a minute I'm in Christ I mean I'm not an outsider I'm a part of the family so whatever it's charismatic or whether it's Baptist traditionalism that may be imposed upon someone we can't go reverting back to those things when Christ has secured our freedom in him all right what a what are the elements of the world the elements of the world along with circumcision, was days and months and seasons and years. Well, what's wrong with observing these things? Well, nothing really. For Paul, they're, they're just non-issues. This is what he said in Romans, Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day is better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should just be fully convinced in his own mind. But again, just keep these things in mind. Look, if you want to observe this day or you want to observe that or you want to follow that, that's on you. Just don't press it on somebody else as a requirement for salvation or to be a part of the covenant community. You can't do that. That's legalism. Paul's opposed to that. The Bible's opposed to that. Now, it appears that Paul, in, in the book of Acts, he directed his travels with the Jewish calendar in mind. He's not opposed to it necessarily. He used that as a way to set his travels. It's kind of like this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, for the Jews, then I'll do this, and I'll do this. For the Gentiles, I'll do this, and I'll do this. For Paul, it's a gospel issue. Look, if I've got to conform over here and do this for here or do this for here, I'll do what is necessary as long as it doesn't distract from the gospel, add or subtract from it. Now, but to observe sacred occasions as a matter of religious obligation, as though these were the essence of the gospel of faith and church membership, that was, that's to make a step backwards, back from liberty to bondage. It was, in fact, a token of submission to the elements, the elements of the world. Galatians 4.3, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to these elemental spirits of the world, elemental principles of the world. That's where we were. But now that you've come to know God, you've come to know Him, or rather be known by Him, how can you turn back? And notice what Paul calls these elemental principles. How can you turn back to weak 
and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves, do you, you want to be their slaves again? Now, for me, this issue on the elemental spirits, this is very interesting to me. Paul uses the word stoicheion, elemental principles. In the context, it's a reference, now listen carefully, it's a reference to the observance of Jewish law. Now pause. We're preaching to Gentiles. And you're going to be enslaved once again to Jewish law. They weren't ever under Jewish law. So how are they going back to Jewish law when they were never under Jewish law? It's an interesting thought, right? How are you going to go back and submit to that that they never submitted to in the first place? So Paul, in talking to these Gentiles and warning them about these Jewish laws, these elemental principles, he's saying, look, he is equating the mandatory observance to Jewish law for salvation as equal to that of living in worldly paganism. Worldly paganism, Jewish legalism. They're both steps in the wrong way. Whether you go back to your paganism and worship the moon, the sun, and the stars, or whether you go over here and try to hold all of this law, both of these are steps away from the gospel that Paul preached because his gospel is all grace received by faith. And it obliterates paganism and legalism and sets a man free in Christ. I've never caught that before. In Galatians 4.10, he warns them about these days, months, seasons, and years. By the way, you see them there, days, months, seasons, and years. If you write a reference note there, Genesis 1.14, the heavenly luminaries. Genesis 1.14, three things, signs, seasons, and years. So these heavenly luminaries and these days and seasons and months and years, there's this Jewish observance for one reason, and then there's this Gentile observance for pagan idolatry. You see, all of this is going on in this book, and it's just something about it. This issue of just faith is one thing, but there's something about humanity. If I can grab a hold of something tangible, and I can do something, I can get credit, and I can feel better about me. And false teachers play on that. If you give a little bit more money, you'll feel a little bit more blessed. If you do this, you'll be a little bit more righteous. If you do that, you'll look a little better. And this stuff sells. Watch, don't, don't watch, but you watch some type of TV show. They do this type of stuff, and it gets you to do, jump through these things, and you somehow feel better about yourself, and people buy into it. You ever ask yourself, how do people follow that guy? It gives them a sense of accomplishment. It's like they're doing something. And it, they don't realize it, but they're in contradiction to the gospel. The gospel says, you don't get any credit. Well, I don't like not getting credit. I want to feel good that I accomplished something. When it comes to the gospel, you accomplish nothing. God did it. And you either believe it or not. It's all Him. And so Paul's gospel takes all credit away from men, false apostles, figure a way to give credit and accomplishment to our works, making us feel better about ourselves. And then we start, here's what happens. When I do three or four things right, instantly I look down at the person who hasn't done as much as me. And then I give them a little guilt trip. 
How come you're not doing like me? Why don't you get circumcised? Well, you don't keep this day. I always keep this day. We start playing with that, right? We start pressuring back and forth. But when it comes to this issue of the gospel, it's very, very dangerous to do so. The point is this, the gospel set them free from paganism as well as it set Paul free from Jewish legalism. To, refer, to, to return to the former slavery is unthinkable. So this type of path will lead to apostasy for the Gentiles. It would lead them back into pagan worship. Now, for believers in Christ, to put themselves under the control of these elemental principles afresh was not just reverting to infancy, it was tantamount to a declaration to the death of Jesus having no redemptive power. Christ redeemed me, but I've got to go back and do this to get credit. Then was his redemption not enough for you? Why do I have to go back and do something to add to it? And so it is a denial of his redemptive work. All right, let's move on. Just two more. Number six, um, a central theme of the gospel, which is the same that Christ taught in two parables. I need to do these very, very shortly, but it is an interesting thought, and you can think upon it later. But let's take the prodigal son, and let's take the labors of the vineyard. Those two thoughts, right? So if you think about the prodigal son, if the father of the prodigal acted like these false teachers... So think about that for a moment. Here's the father, and here comes the son, and he's coming home. Father, I have sinned, right? And so let's say the father acts like these troublemakers. He would say something perhaps like this. Well, that's all well and good that you want to come home, but I've heard your empty confessions before. You can come home, but unless you do your chores for a year, unless you keep out of trouble, and unless you get a haircut right? I'm not even going to begin to start believing you. That, that would be like what these false teachers are doing. You must prove your words before I believe them. You must get circumcised first. It, the gospel of Jesus and Paul does not put people on probation to see if they live up to a standard, but rather, here's Jesus and Paul. The gospel gives you something you don't deserve for free. Isn't that beautiful? He said, said, well, show me that in Galatians. Well, I'll show you in the parable. The father does say this. This is what he actually says, quote, this is my son. Don't keep your chores, get a haircut. No, this is my son. What does Paul say? You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir to God through Christ. Not keep this, do this, observe this, observe that. You've been adopted. You have a father. You belong to the family. You've been set free. That, they agree in that. Now, here's the other one, very quickly. is the labors of the vineyard. You, you know, this, this story irritates you. If you lived it, it would irritate you. You come there early that morning, says, I'll hire you. I'll give you one denarius. You work all day. You're like, man, work out there in the heat all day long. And then here comes this, sorry, sap guy comes in quitting times at five he shows up at 4 45 he works for 15 minutes and the boss gives him a denarii and you're like dude that guy worked 15 minutes and got a denarii i'm about to get 10 and then he gives you the same amount 
<laughs> you talk about American getting mad. We might be like Yvonne and go Hispanic panic right now. That ain't right. That is not fair. Now, there's a guy by the name of T.W. Manson, and he pointed out that there was a coin worth a twelfth of a denarius. It was called a pandion, twelfth of a denarius. But there was no such thing as a twelfth part of the love of God. Paul is teaching the Galatians that the love of God is not based on human merit. It's solely on his desire to give what he has chosen to give and that it is received by faith. The same amount is given to those who believe late in life and those who believe early in life. Look, I, I, I believed upon Christ when I was eight years old. This week in West Frankfort, Illinois, there's a guy in the hospital that's 67 years old. He's hard and he's against the gospel and he's honest. He tells Pastor Brett, I don't believe in Christ. I don't worship Christ. I'm not going to your church. I have no interest. And that's his life. But now he's in the hospital. Now death's knocking at the door. And he says, I- I'm ready to talk. And yesterday, by all admissions, he comes to repentance and believes on Christ at 67. He's, like He's 67 and he gets the same reward. I've had to walk this walk since I was eight. It's not fair. Whoever said it was, it's all grace. He gets righteousness, and I get righteousness. I started early in the morning. He started late in the evening. It's the same gift. Paul and Jesus had the same gospel. It's not about your merit. I worked in the heat all day. And your point? You didn't earn nothing. Christ gave it to you. You ought to worship him because he's been so generous. Lastly, and we're done, the law of Christ. And that's, you could write a book on the law of Christ, but let's say these things to conclude. Paul's made things clear in regards to not being bound by the law. Galatians 5.18, you might want to write these last references down. But Galatians 5.18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Galatians 6.2, it gets to the end of the book. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. So we're not under the law, but we're to fulfill the law of Christ. Yes. The old law has been replaced with something far greater. The old law was of bondage, but the new law is of freedom. He says in Galatians 5.13, You were called to freedom, brothers. Don't, but now listen, I'm going to repeat this. 